Morning. How many of you have your Bibles? Come on, claim them. Okay, take them, turn to the table of contents. I'm serious, turn to the table of contents. Because the book we're going to look at this morning is so small, if you're looking for it, it'll take you a while to find it. We're going to do Obadiah. In my Bible, it's on page 1001 and 2, and that's it. 1001 and 2. But uh, turn to Obadiah. Uh, if you're here this morning and it's your first time, we are doing a series called The Untouchables, where we are looking at various books of the Bible that are not preached on all that often. And so uh, today we're in the book, of, the book of Obadiah, which honestly, I've never preached on before. First time I preached on it. Shortest book in the uh, Old Testament, 21 verses. And um, most of you probably know that there is a book called Obadiah. I hope you do, but you may not have really read it or studied it. And um, my first reading through it, honestly, was like, why did I pick this series uh, to do? But the more I studied it, as is the Word of God, I, I love this. I think you're going to be, um, it's, it speaks to us today. It is very relevant for where we are as a people and as a nation. So we're going to we're going to jump in the book of Obadiah in just a moment. Uh, personal word, thank you for your prayers for Olivia and I as we are out of town. We were in uh, Ethiopia until last Saturday. Nate and Cheryl are, are doing great. Uh, I'll fill you in in the weeks ahead, show you some pictures of some of the stuff we've done. But they are uh, they're thriving there. They're doing great. They're exactly where God wants them. They'll be back here in, uh, at the end of October, part of November, uh, for a short period of time. So... Uh, we'll get to see them and bless them while, we're, while they're here. Um, all right, let's jump in this uh, study together. Um, my brother is uh, two and a half years younger than I am. Um, he and I, I you know, I, two and a half years, you don't, I, I don't remember life without my brother. Uh, he has been around basically for the whole time I've been around. Uh, we're both... Uh, very competitive, and though I'm two and a half years older, he's actually a better natural athlete than I am. Uh, uh, don't let anybody tell him I said that, um, but it, it made our uh, competition growing up very, very, very intense. Uh, I'll just give you one story. I've told this before a long time ago. It's not a story I repeat very often because it's embarrassing, but I'll go ahead and share this story with you. When um, when we were in high school, um, we were overseeing, this is a picture right at the end of my high school uh, days, and that's my brother. Yeah, the hair is massive, I know, and it got longer even as college went on. So um, when uh, we were in high school, we were overseeing uh, uh, an organization called RAs. Uh, any of you remember RAs? How many from Baptist World? Uh, Royal Ambassadors is kind of a boys organization that um, taught young men, young boys really, elementary school, uh, about missions. And then there were GAs, later known as ACT-teens, which was the girls' part of this. So my brother and I were the counselors for RAs. And so on a Wednesday night, we're overseeing the RA program at church and uh, part of what we would do is play games and do stuff. And so my brother took uh, a team. We, we divided up into teams, and we were going to play uh, touch football. I was over one team. My brother was, was over another team. Uh, and 
again, I'm embarrassed to say this, we were in high school, high school uh, together. And um, um, my team was winning, which was usually the case. And um, for some reason, my brother took exception to what was taking place. And so he, uh, I thought, was overly aggressive with one of my young players. And so I took exception to his over-aggressiveness and went after him. Um, some shirts may have been torn. Some punches may have been thrown. Um, it, it got intense. It got intense. And actually, um, my friend, another friend of ours was also counseling, a guy named Bobby Weeks. And Bobby stepped in between us to try and break up the brawl. And uh, uh, I, I'm not sure how, but my, my fist connected with Bobby's chin. And so really, the only one who went down in the whole evening was Bob Weeks. And so I felt really bad about, about this. Um, now, while we're doing this, there's a prayer meeting taking place in church that my dad's leading and my mom's in the prayer meeting. And someone went running into the prayer meeting to my mom and said, Barton Happy, his name was, they called him Happy, Brian is his name, but back in high school, he had a nickname. And she and telling and I'm sure it's one of those stinking GAs who went and told him, you know, those tattletale GAs who went in and told my mom that, uh, that we, got in a, we got in a fist fight during a prayer meeting at church while we're supposed to be counseling the RAs. We were incredible examples of grace and mercy. And There were times when, honestly, I wanted to kill my brother. I mean, sibling, it got that intense, sibling rivalry. I mean, I, you know, my young, stupid stage. Uh, my brother had a health scare about two months ago, and uh, I was saying to Kathy, and at this point in life, my brother really is, other than my wife, my closest friend. And I was saying, I can't imagine a world in which my brother isn't here. I can't even, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. It just threw me so off balance. Now, he's fine, and... Things are good, but sibling rivalry uh, has been around for a long time. Cain and Abel, it's pretty early. Sons of Noah, Joseph, and all his brothers. One of the ones that had an incredible impact historically has been Isaac, excuse me, Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac. Uh, twin brothers. And it says in the book of Genesis, but the two children struggled with each other in the womb. Their rivalry went all the way back before they were born. And, you know, one's born and the other's grasping his heel. Uh, it, it is an intense sibling rivalry that takes place. And they're very different. One's very outdoorsy. One's more manipulative, a little bit of a mama's boy. I mean, it was an intense, intense rivalry that they had. It got so intense that um, Esau, who was the older, stood in line to get the birthright or the majority of the inheritance because he was older. And one day he'd been out hunting. You remember the story. He comes back. He's starving. Jacob has made some food. He agrees to sell this little bit of food to Esau, who's starving at this point. The hunter, I guess he didn't get much. Um, he's been out hunting for this inheritance. Not only that, but 
Esau stood in line to receive the blessing from his father. And if you think about it, this blessing is really important because it stands in the line of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and blank. But he stole the blessing from Esau. This rivalry was intense. They go off, they get married, they have families. Eventually, Jacob, whose name has changed to Israel, forms the nation of Israel with the 12 tribes and the blessing of God so that it becomes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau has his own family, wives, children, descendants. And they form what is known as the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom. Now Esau, his nickname was Red, uh, and Edom also means red. And I don't want to say that God had a thing against redheads early on, uh, but he was known as, as being red. That was supposed to be funny uh, for those of you. Fast forward some thousand years. And you have these nations now formed that are descended from these two sibling rival brothers. And into this scenario is cast the prophet Obadiah. We don't know anything about Obadiah. We don't know where he's from. We don't know who he is. We know his name means servant of the Lord, but that's really all we know about him. We don't really even know when this book was written. We have some indicators by what's written in it so that there are some guesses about the dating of it, but we don't know for, for sure. We do know that in some way Obadiah was a pious, patriotic, sensitive resident of Judah, sensitive to the voice of the Lord. And he speaks in this book a word from God. And really, the entire 21 verses of the book of Obadiah are a word of judgment against the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, and a promise for what God's going to do in the future. As a spokesman for God, Obadiah waited patiently for God to bring about his promise to the nation Israel, but it's going to be a long time coming, and I'm not even sure he realizes what he's saying about the future. There's the immediate, what's going to take place, as in most prophecies, different levels or tiers, and then there's the future prophecy that is yet to come that we'll see that is a picture of the grace of God. I, I, just to give you background, and I, I, this is my teaching coming out. Just hang with me for a second. But um, yeah, I'm showing maps uh, during, during church. So just hang with me for the maps here for just a second. Scott mentioned this last week in the book of Amos. And it, it's really important to remember this as you do your Old Testament Bible readings. That following Solomon, when his son came in, that the nation of Israel got divided into two parts. There was a northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, which was made up of ten tribes, and they had a series of kings, never from really the same line. They might have two or three from the same line, but there was always rebellion, bad kings, Ahab, Jezebel, that, that, that group, that was in the nation of Israel, ten tribes. In the south, you had, and that's the darker yellow, so the blue is Israel, 
the nation of Israel and the ten tribes. The bottom, the yellow, uh, darker yellow, is the nation of Judah, which is made up of two tribes, and the descendants of David sat on the throne of Judah throughout their history. Below Judah, it's not really in a different color, and I'm not sure you can read it, but it says the kingdom of Edom. The kingdom of Edom. So the descendants of Esau uh, settled and became a part of the southern border with Judah. Nation of Israel is destroyed, the ten tribes to the north, somewhere around 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. They're carried off, they're intermingled in marriage. It's a complicated history, I'm not going to get into it, but for all practical purposes, the ten tribes to the north were lost. Um, they were destroyed because of their wickedness. God brings a condemnation on them. But the nation of uh, Judah lasts for oh, another 150, almost 200 years into uh, 587 B.C. when they are conquered and taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. Uh, you didn't know you were going to get so much history. This is just a reminder for many of you. But they're carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. That's the time of Daniel. Remember, Daniel's carried off. He and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny, Abednego, are carried off into captivity into Babylon. You have other uh, prophets like Ezekiel during this period. We have, it's the period of the exile that lasts for 70 years before they return back. It's somewhere during this period that we think Obadiah writes. And we know it because, or we feel like it is, or scholars feel like this is most likely the case, either at the end of the exile or after the exile when they come back, because in the book he's going to speak about Edom celebrating the destruction of Judah and then being carried off. So he, he's talking to Edom the descendants of Esau, probably around this period when the nation is coming back. What does, what does all this have to do with us? In the Bible, if you look at it, Esau seems to represent the flesh or pride. He was a, he was a guy who could do it himself. And he was a prideful man. Jacob, of course, is not much better I mean, he's a manipulator, um, he, he's a deceiver, but because of what happens in his life, he represents grace or mercy. So we're going to see God rejected Esau and he chose Jacob. And here's the incredible thing, why? Why did he choose him? Was there anything Jacob did that made him so much better? No, he was really wasn't much better than Esau. But it shows the mercy of grace of God. And so what we have here is a picture of pride versus a picture of grace. And we're going to see that plays out in the book of Obadiah. And I think you'll see that it has meaning for, for us as a nation today. So I'm going to jump in. It's not often you come to church and the pastor actually reads an entire book of the Old Testament. Uh, but we're going to read all the verses from uh, Obadiah today, all 21 of them. Here's the first point about pride. Pride blinds us from turning to God. Pride blinds us from turning to God. So here we go, Obadiah, verses 1 through 3. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. 
an envoy sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. The pride of your heart has deceived you. This message to Edom that's coming from God himself to Obadiah is this, your pride has deceived you. Now, this is not really a message we want to get from God, uh, that pride has deceived us, or really any negative message, but this is the word that's coming from Obadiah to them. And we think of pride uh, many times as being this feeling of self-importance. Like, I, I am somebody. If you just knew who I was. The self-importance. But really, the, the message of pride that, that Obadiah is bringing to Edom is this. You think you're self-sufficient. You think you, you can do all of this yourself. And the message of self-sufficiency is it blinds us to our need from God because we don't need God. If I'm prideful and self-sufficient, then what need do I have of restoring my relationship with the Creator? I can do this myself. Edom has this vision or this feeling that they are, they are something. And they can do everything themselves. And it really, if you look at it, it goes all the way back to Esau, who had this feeling of, I can just do all of this myself. The Bible has a lot to say about pride, by the way, and none of it's good. Um, pride goes before destruction, according to um, Proverbs. James, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Because of their pride, the Edomites were blinded to the fact that God was always really there for them. I mean, really, Esau is a descendant of Abraham, of Abram. And, and really, God still stood there for them if they would receive him, but they refused to because they were so prideful. They were blinded by their pride. I'm going to run through this, but we're just running through the book of uh, Obadiah. They were, and listen, these things that I'm about to tell you, please listen to them because I think they speak to us today. They were prideful and they were blinded because they trusted in their own security. They trusted in their own security. I'm going to keep reading through the book. Verses 3 and 4 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Now, um, remembering back on the map, the nation of Edom was south of the nation of Judah, and the area they lived in was the area that is today modern Jordan. And it was very hilly, very rocky, very cliff-oriented. As a matter of fact, their capital uh, was the ca word, uh, word Sela, or S-E-L-A, which meant um, rock. Uh, it later, in Greek, became the word for rock. Do you remember the word for rock in Greek? Petra. Petra. And so Sela, once the Edomites are conquered, they... Uh, are conquered by a nation that builds this structure known as Petra in the south of Jordan. I just threw Indiana and the Lost Crusade in there because it was filmed. Uh, it was filmed at Petra. And you're, I don't know if you remember. For those of you, I don't recommend movies, but if you see this one at the end, they're riding through the clefts of the rocks, all all through on horseback. I started to show the clip, but 
just imagine they're riding horses through. That was, the, that was where they were. This was the capital. And they were so hidden in the rocks that they thought nobody can conquer us. We are, we are secure here. Oh, but I goes on and says, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars up in the mountains, the hills, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Listen, we are, there is no such thing as hiding from God. There is no security that we can say, I am so secure in myself that nothing can touch me. Because if God chooses, he can, he can reach wherever he wants. They trusted in their security. They also trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their wealth. Verses um, 5 and 6. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? The answer there is no. <laughs> They'd steal everything. If grape pickers come to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. And again, keep in mind, whenever he says Esau, he's talking about Edom because that's the, the, the nature of the, the, the nation. Uh, the, the Edomites were a very wealthy people. They lived in the mountains, but they lived on a trade route that was known as the King's Highway. And people would have to pass through. When they passed through, the Edomites would take a toll, much like the roads we're building today. They would take a toll for the nations passing through. And as a result, they had become very wealthy. And they're saying, hey, the Edomites are saying this. They're saying, hey, if, if, if we get robbed, <clears throat> we've got a lot hidden. Uh, they may take some of it, but they won't take all of it because they don't know where all of it is. And God is once again saying to them, they may not know, but I know. And you will, when you get robbed, when you get pillaged, they're going to take it all. You've trusted in your wealth. God says to them, when I get through with you, there'll be nothing left. They trusted in their allies. Verse 7, all your allies will force you into the border. Your friends this is verse 7. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Edom had been safe for so long, and they had developed all this alliance with nations around them who wanted to trade with them and wanted the trade route. So they're dependent on their allies, and God is saying, look, those people who are sitting down at the table with you and eating bread with you, they're going to turn on you. You don't know it, but they're going to turn on you. They trusted in their wisdom. Verse 8, in that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? The Edomites were celebrated for their wisdom uh, and prudent counsel. Jeremiah speaks of this in Jeremiah 49, 7 about the wise, the great wisdom of the Edomites. He's saying, God's saying, I'm going to destroy the wise and knowledgeable men of Edom. Why, why is he saying that? Because he's saying, listen, your wisdom is nothing compared to what I can do. Finally, they trusted in their military. They had a strong military presence. It says, your warriors, O Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. When Obadiah is writing this, Edom is very strong. I mean, it'd be like, I don't know, riding to the United States and saying, hey, 
You trust your security. You're trusting in your wealth. You're trusting in your allies. You're trusting in your wisdom. You're trusting in your military. You are very strong now, but because you become so self-sufficient and have no need of God, I'm going to bring you down. It's scary, isn't it? I mean, just this past week, we celebrated the independence of our nation. We recognize as followers of Jesus Christ that much of what God has done in this nation, I believe, is because we, we were founded by a people who looked to God, who saw that this wasn't just about them. This was about what God was doing in them, not all of our founding fathers, I mean, but enough, enough. We hear very little of that today. We are a nation that's self-sufficient. We are a nation who's entered a period of incredible pride. And could it be that the attendance in our churches are reflected, the de decline in attendance is reflected simply because we give off an air as a people that we really don't need anything else. We have all of these exact things operating in our lives. Pride always blinds us to our need for God. That's why God opposes the proud. He wants, it's not that God hates the proud, I don't think. I think it's that God is saying, look, your pride is blinding you to your need for me. And I, I need to come against it and break it so that you will be humble and recognize what you need. Second point is this. It binds us, pride does, from helping others. From helping others. Scott talked about this last week, this, this balance between um, personal holiness and social justice. And there's this idea in Obadiah as well that that what pride has done has kept them from helping their neighbors. Verses 10 and 11. Let me just read it, comment on it, show you what he says. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. This is where we think the whole Babylonian exile and captivity reference is taking place. It doesn't state it explicitly, but it's the idea that when the enemy came against Judah and entered Jerusalem, carried off their wealth and their people, Edom stood back and did nothing. They did nothing. In the New Living Translation, he, he says at the end of it, foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. Now, he's not saying that Edom attacked Israel. I think he's saying something a little scarier for some of us. He said this, when you stand back and do nothing, it's as if you're acting as an enemy. Is that not terrifying to you a little bit? To say, no, 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 you know what? This isn't my fight. This isn't my deal. This, this aspect of, of, of God, of, of the poor, 
being ransacked or, or, or people being trafficked or, or the unborn's lives being taken. That's not my battle. And I think God is saying, when you do nothing, you're acting on the wrong side. And the danger, I believe, in this whole concept, this whole truth, has to do with pride. And you say, well, why would pride be? Isn't pride just, you know, puffing yourself up? Yes, but what pride does is it looks down its nose at others and says, I'm not going to get engaged. Believe it or not, that's a prideful. Now, I know we don't do things at times because we're fearful, but I think fear is a, is a coloration of pride. Think about it. I'm afraid. Why am I afraid? Because I don't want to get hurt. Well, why do you not want to get hurt? Because I'm the most important thing there is. Instead, we put ourselves, pride binds us from helping those around us. Not only does it keep us from God and our relationship with him, but it, it, it keeps us from helping those in need. How many times do we, do we see, even in our country, when something happens and someone is attacked or something, some occasion occurs, people stand back and do nothing. What is, what is that? Well, we would say, well, it's fear. You know, they're free, afraid of getting hurt. Again, I still say that I think the core of it goes back to this aspect of I'm the center of the universe. The world can't get along without me. A prideful aspect. There are three, real quick, there are three passages, verses 12, 13, and 14, where God says against Edom, you should not, you should not, kind of aspects of pride. Look at them real quick. He says, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Instead of helping Israel, they were actually rejoicing in the fact that Israel was brought down. If you ever think of what, if you ever wonder what God thinks about rejoicing over those who are being brought down, mistreated, especially fellow Christians, I, I think this speaks to that. You know, I, I, I look back at much of my life and there, there are periods I'm just embarrassed to even talk about. You know, things that I've thought or felt or whatever. I mean, there have been periods where I don't, I don't agree theologically with a lot of the prosperity doctrine preachers. I don't agree at all with most of what's being taken place. But I remember days when I was younger where I celebrated the fact that some of those guys fell. Now, I didn't celebrate it like go out and party, but in my heart, I was like, hey, you got theirs. That's horrible. That's pride on my part, saying instead of just mourning for what was happening and the fact that a brother in Christ, even though I may disagree with him theologically, fell and I, I don't like the preaching and I don't like the televised junk, to even think about that is embarrassing. But we do it too often. Even if we know better than to say it, somewhere in our hearts we at times celebrate it. Verse 13, he says, You should not march through the gates of people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. What is he saying? Look, would you, 
What Edom did was, when they got taken out, you walked in and took what wasn't yours. You, shouldn't, you should have been helping, but instead you were taking. You, were, you could have said, I, we're just stepping into the vacuum that was created by their absence, but really what you're doing is you're taking. He also then in verse 14 says, You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Again, you're cutting off their escape route. You are, you are making it impossible for them. And you're, you're complicit in their destruction because of what you, what you did. The, listen, people, here's what I'm trying to say. I think Obadiah is saying to us. Look, when we're proud, it keeps us from having a right relationship with God because we're self-sufficient. And when we're proud, it also keeps us from having a right relationship with one another. It binds us from helping our brothers and sisters or humanity as a whole. And he goes on and then finally says this, the choice you have is between judgment or mercy. We need pride broken because what happens is pride is going to lead to judgment, but there is an opportunity here for mercy, mercy from God. Here's what he goes on and says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. The day of the Lord is, is the day of the Lord. This is the first reference in the Bible we have to this phrase, the day of the Lord. Obadiah was the first one to use it. And it was since used both in the Old and New Testament. And it's a metaphor that is used to describe the coming judgment of God. Could be upon a particular nation or nations or people. In Thessalonians, Paul says, Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, the judgment of God, it always results in one of two things. The destruction of the wicked or the salvation of the righteous. The day of the Lord, Obadiah says, is coming. The day of the Lord in which judgment or mercy is going to be given depending on the judge. It's his choice. He's saying, it goes on and says, along with Edom's destruction, Israel will be delivered. Now, I, I believe what Obadiah is prophesying is not national Israel. I think there's an aspect of that for the coming of Christ, that Israel's going to come back. Jesus is going to be placed in that setting. Some people have taken it that Israel is going to be restored uh, in, the, in the end days. I, I really don't know, but I do know this, that there's an aspect of this in which he's talking about what I believe is spiritual Israel, the coming together of Jews and Gentiles under the banner of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Edom will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. 
The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountain of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Zarephath will possess the towns of the Negev, Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, besides having trouble reading all that, all those names, I think Obadiah is speaking of a spiritual future where he says that the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. I do believe there's an aspect that refers to to physical Israel. I don't understand all of it and how it's going to play out. God knows. God knows. But I do believe clearly what he's saying is that, that the future house of the redeemed are those that are in Christ, the church. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that she the one she's going to carry of his kingdom uh, the, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The house of Jacob, I believe, is the church of Jesus Christ. The gospel, I think, is being unfolded in this passage. Last week, Scott preached on the book of Amos and referenced this verse where it says, In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of whom? Edom and all the nations that bear my name. All the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. Amos and Obadiah prophesy of the, of the coming of a time when the house of Jacob will will have its inheritance. And um, just so you know that I I don't think I'm making this up, um, this very passage and its reference to Edom is quoted by James at what's known as the Jerusalem Council. When Gentiles have now come into the faith and they're trying to determine, should, should Gentiles be Jewish in order to be Christian? critical discussion in Acts chapter 15. And when they hear all the testimonies, James gets up and speaks and he says, brothers, listen to me. Simon described to us how God first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. See the reference? This is the Amos passage. It's ruins, I will rebuild, and I will restore it. And he changes the words here from Edom to the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles, or nations, who will bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that they have known for ages. James is saying that the glorious exaltation of Israel that's going to take place in the restoration of the nations is the church. The church, the gospel being proclaimed and people coming to know Jesus Christ as the one who rules their life and forgives their sins. 
Obadiah, 3,000 years ago, speaks of this pride that keeps us from God, this pride that destroys our relationships with one another. But he more importantly, I think, speaks of what's going to take place on Zion's holy hill when Christ comes the first time and returns the second time. And his kingdom is never going to end. The Gentiles are going to be brought in. The nations are going to come. But we have a choice. We have a choice. Do we want to go our own prideful way and receive the judgment of God? Or do we want to humble ourselves and receive the mercy of God? In Romans 9, Paul, in this complicated passage, speaking about election, but he says this, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, it's a very complicated passage, and I still think within the context of Romans uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, he's saying the mercy of God is available. Did Jacob deserve mercy? I think if you look at the life of Jacob, you would say, not a chance. I mean, I would... Not the kind of guy I would have shown mercy to. Did Esau deserve judgment? Well, not any worse to me than Jacob, maybe. Why did God do what he did? Because God is God. But I do know this, that when Jacob was broken in that wrestling match, he was a changed man. When he wrestled with God and God touched his hip and, and broke something broke in him that changed his life, forever. And pride keeps us from receiving this both brokenness and humility that leads us the opportunity to receive the mercy of God. When we come to the table of the Lord, this is not a place of pride. This is a table of humility. It's saying, you know what? Jesus died for me. He was, he was broken. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. I come to this table in a sense of humility and say, God, let your mercy reign. Just as we sang earlier about the mercy of God being poured out on us undeservedly. And every one of us here today, I believe, stands in a position to receive the mercy of God. But pride keeps us from that. So as you come to the table of the Lord today, as we, we remember our Lord's death, may it be a place of humility that says, God, I want a right relationship with you. I want nothing to stand in the way of that. And I want to be used by you to touch the people around me.
May I never look down on people to the point that I don't reach out a hand of grace and mercy to help others. May I stand in the gap representing you to the world today. God, do in us this morning, here at your table, what Obadiah spoke of 3,000 years ago, that we might receive the mercy and grace rather than the judgment of God. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We thank you for the words of Obadiah. Though we don't understand them all, we, we receive this, this grace that you talk about, this mercy that is available. And as we come to the table of the Lord, I pray that, God, you will touch us. You will touch us. That we will receive and we will walk in the mercy and grace that you've made available through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by the cross and the power that inhabits us through the resurrection. Lord, may this not just be some religious thing we go through, but instead, Lord, may your presence meet us here. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. For just a second, reflect.